Hello and welcome to Worldly, Vox's weekly guide to the most important stories in the world, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today, we're going to show you something that the world has never seen before. This was Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu on Monday. We're going to show you Iran's secret nuclear files. Netanyahu was on what looks like a TV set in a government building in Jerusalem. He was literally standing in front of a PowerPoint slide that had the Iranian flag, the yellow nuclear waste symbol, and the words Atomic Archive in big letters. The speech was directed at an audience of one, President Trump, who's about to decide whether to pull the U.S. out of the Iran nuclear deal. But Israel isn't just fighting against the nuclear deal. It's also literally fighting against Iran, inside of Syria, bombing Iranian bases and killing Iranian troops. That could set off a full and catastrophic war between Israel and Iran. But before we get into all of that, let's get into Netanyahu's strange and dramatic press conference in Israel. So Jen, what was it all about? Yeah, so this press conference was legitimately wild. The presentation was amazing. There was one slide of the PowerPoint that literally just said Iran lied in giant letters, and that was the entire slide. It's just a plain white slide that says Iran lied. Iran lied. Yeah, so it wasn't subtle. Uh, and so he has a bunch of props, too. So there he pulls the cover off of these bookshelves and starts talking about the intelligence. Right. So there was two things that were kind of striking. One, this was an amazing intelligence coup by Israel. I mean, they smuggled out books, dozens upon dozens upon dozens upon dozens of documents, all these like literal CDs full of documents. They turned over to the U.S., they turned them over to the uh, IAEA, which tracks whether Iran complies with the deal. So you had the intelligence coup. You had the real questions about whether there was anything much new in it. And Zach, you had a piece up on Vox.com this week that basically said, not really. No. So most of this information was about something called Project Ahmad, which was Iran's nuclear bomb program. The thing about Project Ahmad is that it was shut down in 2003, so like a decade and a half ago. And we already knew about it in 2011. The IAEA issued a report that documented a lot of the stuff that Netanyahu, quote unquote, revealed, like the broad strokes of it. There were new details in his presentation. But, you know, the basic gist of it was known well before the Iran deal was signed. And in fact, it was taken into account when the deal was written. It's it's just not that interesting in terms of actually altering the way we understand Iran's approach to nuclear weapons. But what's interesting, Jen, we, you know, you and I talked about this a little bit when we were first looking at it on TV, on the stream, was just how Trumpian this was in, in the presentation. Right. I mean, you couldn't get more explicit, right? So first of all, you know, Benjamin Netanyahu is the prime minister of Israel. He typically delivers most of his speeches in Hebrew, at least first. Um, he started the speech in English and then later did an entire version again in Hebrew. So it was incredibly clear that it was directed at Trump. Otherwise, you wouldn't do that. Um, and just the visuals, everything was like, here are big pictures to show you things. Iran is bad. They lied. And look at all these bad things they're doing. And again, you know, like Zach said, there was a ton of material, right? It's a huge intelligence coup, no matter how you slice it. Um, it was 55,000 pages and 55,000 more files on a bunch of CDs. It's huge, massive. And apparently the Mossad did it, the Israeli intelligence service, overnight. They'd like crossed the border, went in, seized all these documents, and then got back out. That's insane. But again, it's not, like there was nothing, according to the experts who've looked at this, there was nothing in there that was stuff we didn't already know. 
But it was the presentation of it that was the point, right? You could do a briefing on this and tell Trump, or you can have, you know, former CIA director Mike Pompeo come in and tell him, oh, this is what we know, or whatever. When you have Bibi standing on stage going, Iran lied, like Trump's going to respond to that. Right. I mean, we've learned about Trump that he likes to get stuff on note cards with as few words as possible in a large font. The more photos, the better. The more video clips, the better. And so this was that. Yeah, the it's only just way this big note cards. The only way they could have made this more Trump is if they just put a picture of Trump somehow randomly in the middle of the presentation. Uh, and in BB's defense, there's uh, an extra layer of subtlety and cleverness to the presentation of it that I don't want to skip over, which is that he sort of implied that Iran not turning over these documents to the IAEA put them in violation of the Iran deal. He didn't outright say it because it's not true. There's nothing in the deal that requires them to turn over all of their old documents about their old nuclear weapons program. But by saying that, and, and they probably should have turned it over, not they didn't have to, but they ought to in the spirit of the deal. The fact that they didn't they kind of did lie. Like, he's not just making up that oh, they, they absolutely yeah, did yeah, lie. Yeah. So one of the parts of the presentation that it's also, I don't think we should skip over. So he actually plays, like, clips and has, like, quotes of Iranian leaders flat out saying, no, we never had a program to get a nuclear bomb. This is a lie. I stress that the Islamic Republic has never been after nuclear weapons. And then he shows, here is the, the documents showing our nuclear bomb program. And so it was really clear, like, yeah, he made the case Iran lied. What he kind of elided, right? Like he kind of skipped over the fact that there's nothing about this that suggested they kept doing this after the Iran nuclear deal. So uh, th there's the substantive argument is really fascinating and we'll jump into it in a second. But just to kind of stay on the train of the how he presented it, in case the message of all of this with the big note cards and the video clips and the few words was somehow lost, he then went on Trump's favorite TV show, Fox and Friends, which is itself weird to have a foreign leader be on a sort of goofy morning show and delivered a message about how bad the deal was, how it should be either fixed or nixed, and sort of talked pretty much indirectly right at Trump. You need a major overhaul. It really means a new deal. But, you know, the, the person who is going to make that decision for the United States is, is one person. That's... Uh, President Trump, and I uh, I trust his judgment. I know that he'll do the right thing. And I said yesterday, he'll do the right thing for America, the right thing for Israel, and the right thing for the security and peace of the entire world. And what's interesting there is it kind of leads into what the substance of Netanyahu's argument is, right? And Zach, you were talking about this bit in your piece. He's arguing kind of two things. One, Iran has lied. This verifies it. It's further proof. So if they've lied then, maybe they can't be trusted now. And then two, He's linking the deal with what Iran is doing in the region, which is also, frankly, what Trump is doing. He's saying this deal gave Iran a lot of money, which it did. It allowed Iran to kind of gradually become emerging from the isolation it was in, which it has. And he's saying, therefore, you have Iran on the march in Lebanon, where Hezbollah, its proxy, is in the government, has the most powerful militia. It's on the march in Iraq. It's on the march in Yemen. And in Syria, Iran has basically helped Bashar al-Assad win the civil war. So he's kind of linking the two the deal to Iran today. I mean, is that fair? I mean, this is a topic of bitter debate among people who follow the Middle East, bitter, vicious, and, and emotional. The Iran deal has become one of the most fraught topics in the U.S. So what I'm about to say is, I will note, quite controversial. I think it's completely unfair. I think that there is little evidence that Iran has diverted the economic benefits that it's gotten from the deal into its military program. It was doing many of the things in the region 
that it wanted to do beforehand. And many of the things, like its ambitions in Yemen, have essentially nothing to do with the Iran deal. There's not any good evidence linking the nuclear agreement to the decision of the Houthi rebels to ask for Iranian assistance. That's actually Saudi Arabia's fault. The nuclear deal, by design, didn't cover Iran's regional ambitions because trying to get to yes on give up your nuclear program was hard enough. Layering on give up your entire foreign policy would have been even more difficult. It's a bit of an ask. Yeah, Yeah. so it was just a limited arms control agreement to stop a rogue regime from getting nuclear weapons. And on that front, it's been very successful. Yeah, and according to... Basically, any Israeli military or intelligence official you can find quoted anywhere possible, they will all, almost to a person, say that fact, that the Iran deal has worked. Um, I, I do think, you know, I don't know if there's direct evidence that they have taken X dollars that they received from from the U.S. and turned it to, you know, Y weapons program in, in Syria for Hezbollah. Um, but there's no question that they have become wildly more uh, influential across the Middle East, no matter pretty much anywhere you look, right? They are essentially, you know, and this is this is part of what Iran has planned to do for a long time. So uh, a, a close friend of mine, Philip Smythe, is a, a researcher who studies this stuff. And he actually flagged this kind of early on, back as early as 2013, 2015, that Iran was strategically trying to t- help, not essentially take over Syria, but establish Syria as this like base from which to have a solid power, you know, to essentially attack Israel. So uh, Iran has been on the march and trying to do this. And the fact that they are less and less isolated on the international stage, I think it's impossible to say it doesn't, you know, have an effect on how powerful and how much they think they can throw their weight around. I mean, so the, the Trump line is basically, and this is more nuanced because it doesn't always come just from Trump, that Iran may be complying with the letter of the deal, but not the spirit of the deal. I think there actually is some truth to that. When the Obama administration kind of finalized this thing, I, you know, I was there when they signed it with the Iranians and covered it pretty closely. They did think, they really did think, and they talked about it both privately and to a degree publicly, that this would lead to much more tangible, much warmer relations with Iran. Not embassies, not their best friend, and it might take a while, but that this would be kind of like the gateway drug. Yeah, the diplomatic opening. Right. right? And, and they did think that, you know, this might lead to Iran doing less in Iraq and less in Lebanon and less in Syria. And it hasn't, right? So I think I take your point that the Iran deal itself was not meant to do that in a literal sense. I agree. But the Obama guys thought that it would, and they were wrong. And what Iran is doing in Syria in particular is really scary. I mean, they are building bases. You know, Jen, to your point, they were talking about doing it. Now they are doing it. Right. They built one base near Damascus called Tias that Israel bombed. They're building a naval base. They're building at least five other bases that are known. And they're especially trying to get back, get uh, you know visibility and a presence in the Golan Heights, I, I, I don't literally know. on Israel's border. This whole conversation is so weird to me. It, it feels like a giant post hoc ergo propter hoc fallacy, right? Like one thing, therefore the other thing. There's lots of stuff that happened in the Middle East that isn't the Iran deal. And those things, I mean, even going back to the Iraq war, if you really want to blame something for Iran's regional ambitions and and increased activity, it's the fact that the United States in 2003 took out the greatest (laughs) check on its ambitions. That's absolutely also correct, yes. Right. Like, it's not that the Iran deal allowed 
Iran to suddenly spread its wings and fly and spread death around the region. It's that they had been steadily expanding this presence since 2003, and there's little evidence that the U.S. sanctions regime that existed prior to the Iran deal was restraining their regional ambitions, right? It just— it seems like we're taking the most extreme and overambitious arguments the Obama people made, which I wrote at the time, incidentally, were extreme and overambitious. Even the president himself said it, and it seemed ridiculous to me. Um, and, and we're taking that and we're abstracting that away from the concrete gains that you've gotten from a deal that is demonstrably working. Yeah, and I think just to you know, tie it back to, to Benjamin Netanyahu's presentation, right? So the argument you know, that Iran is maybe not completely forthcoming about its nuclear ambitions and that it had all these secret files and it actually, you know, retained the knowledge, if not like the capacity, but the knowledge of how to do this. Um, the idea that that is an argument against the Iran deal is a really interesting trick of logic, right? The entire point of the deal is we don't trust Iran so we are going to have really intrusive inspections. Now, are they as intrusive as some people would have liked? No, of course not. Are there ways for them to cheat? Absolutely. But having inspectors there and, you know, routinely inspecting facilities is a hell of a lot better than having literally no inspectors at all allowed to go anywhere, right? So if you think that Iran is not trustworthy, killing the deal that takes away any possible way to check what they're doing doesn't seem to me to be the most brilliant way of going about doing that, right? I mean, there is, though, a substantive thing that I don't want to dismiss. I don't envy, on the most part, American foreign policy officials who look at Iran and try to figure out what to do. My wife used to be one of them. We have a lot of friends who actually do do that. I don't envy Israel, frankly. I mean, these are, this is not an easy thing. And it's not an easy thing because Iran does lie. Iran is violent. And Iran is literally trying to attack Israel. And what's changed the last couple of weeks, we had a really good piece written by an author named Neri Zilber up on our site that I'd encourage people to read because it gets into this in some detail, is... Israel and Iran have had a shadow war for a very long time, and they fought it with the proxy in the middle. That proxy was Hezbollah in Lebanon, an enormously well-trained, well-organized, well-armed, basically quasi-army, if not army, that has tens of thousands of rockets that are aimed at Israel and can basically at this point hit any part of Israel, including Jerusalem, including the south. For a long time, when Israel fought Iran, they were fighting Hezbollah, right? So they weren't actually killing Iranian troops. They were killing Hezbollah troops trained by Iran, which was a major difference. But that's not what's happening anymore. And in early April, right before the U.S. bombed Syria, Israel bombed Syria. And Israel has bombed Syria dozens of times. What was unique and new was that Israel killed Iranians, and Iran acknowledged it. So Iran publicly said, hey, you killed seven of our people, including a high-ranking colonel. Here's the names of the people. And that's the new thing, right? Like, that's the risk of war between Israel and Iran is the war that people fear. And that's really the risk that's growing. The scariest part to me about that story um, was a quote from an Iranian official in which he's threatened that there would be retaliation against Israel for this. And it didn't say when, it didn't say how, but Neri in his piece said that people are treating this seriously, like not that it's a question of if, but when Iran acts on that threat. And if that's true, and I, I'm not sure if it is, I can't speak to Iranian intentions here, but then that's that's a concrete pathway towards really scary escalation. Right. Both sides have literally said, like, you better not escalate this because we will come back hard and, you know, you're not going to none of this is going to end well. We will not let this go. So both sides are essentially like, you know, beating their chests and, and staring each other down in this really dangerous game of chicken. Yeah. And just to kind of put a point on how tangible this is, you had a moment 
it was about two months ago that didn't get a huge amount of attention here, but got a huge amount of attention across the world, especially in the Middle East, where an armed Iranian drone crossed over Israeli airspace. That was a recording of Israeli Air Force officials talking about giving permission to an Israeli helicopter to shoot down that drone. Then a short time later, you had Israeli F-16s flying to Syria to bomb Iranian targets. One was shot down. That was the first time Israel had had planes shot down since the 80s. So it's not that these are like little kind of pinpricky things that are all journalistic hyperbole or sort of pundits getting all pundity and sort of making it seem scarier than it is. It's happening. I don't know why Iran is tempting fate like this. Um, While, you know, these are two quite powerful militaries, Iran has just more logistical difficulty getting in theater than the Israelis do because it's right on their border. And this would be, this could be seriously devastating to them. And they're the ones who started the cycle of escalation. They're the ones who have threatened to take it to the next level. Are they really, you know, that angry about Israel bombing their resupply uh, caravans and, and their positions inside Syria that haven't changed the tide of the Syrian civil war, that they're willing to start a broader war over it? Like, that doesn't doesn't make sense to me from their point of view. So I can't quite figure out why they're willing to, to take such a huge risk. And, and Jen, I mean, there's kind of like their military calculus of, you know, Zach saying, why would they take the risk of being bombed? But the political calculus is also weird to me. I mean, the Iranians are smart. They know that Donald Trump hates their country, that he has spent the first 18 months of his presidency working with Saudi Arabia to kind of build this grand coalition of Saudis and Israelis against Iran, that he could tear up the nuclear deal. So why risk, not just as Zach was saying, the military side of it, but why anger Trump when he's already angry? You have to understand, you know, a lot of this goes to the history of just the Iranian regime and the ideology that has driven and, you know, is the foundational principle of their entire regime's existence. And that is, you know, we are standing up, we are the defenders of the Muslim world. And it essentially means against Israel, right? So it's especially, you know, kind of powerful now that, you know, other countries like Saudi Arabia, for example, most importantly, are kind of like tacitly allied with Israel, right? So you essentially have Iran as, you know, throwing its weight around and trying to be the single kind of most important player and really expanding to challenge and to stand up and say, we are this global, you know, not even just like regional, but we are this serious power. Take us seriously. And the more that you get America pissed off at you, the more that you get Israel pissed off at you, the better Iran looks in the sense of like its propaganda, right? We are kind of standing up, look at these like evil hostile powers. Um, Iran is even, you know, once again, kind of moving back to try to move away from the sectarian, like we are Shia versus the Sunnis. And even in their in their militias are trying to push the kind of idea that, no, it's not a Shia thing. It's a Muslim thing, right? We, they're, in, you know, kind of toning down the sectarian rhetoric and trying to once again go back to that kind of founding idea of like, we are standing up for the Muslim world. And so when you get in a fight with Israel, while strategically in terms of like, you know, actual bombing and war, it may seem like a bad idea, but ideologically, it's a really good win for them. I mean, Zach, it's kind of a thought experiment. Is there a way that we could think of this from the Iranian point of view in which they might decide they stand to gain in a weird way from the U.S. pulling out of the deal, either because the world sympathizes with them or because the world looks at it as more evidence Trump can't be trusted? I mean, is that, do you think, a possibility that they're thinking we're better off if this happens? 
Uh, some of them, yeah. It depends on which factions inside the Iranian government we're talking about because it's not monolithic and it has a, a really complex internal political scheme. So you have the president of Iran, Hassan Rouhani, who has really staked his political career on the Iran deal and on on a sense that the deal delivers tangible benefits to the Iranian people. Right. But there are more hardline factions who have always thought we shouldn't be compromising on the nuclear program. This is an issue of vital national concern. America is our enemy. We can't deal with them. And those factions would read it in exactly the way that you're describing. Like, not only are we out of this stupid deal that prevents us from getting nuclear weapons, but, you know, now we can say it's the Americans' fault. We've been Proven right. And our enemies inside the government have been proven wrong. Right. We like, told you you can't trust these Americans. Yeah. it's right. for, From their point of view, it's fabulous. But for the people in Iran that you think you can deal with, if you're an American leader or diplomat, well, they're going to suffer seriously as a result of this. I mean, you can almost imagine like in, in a weird kind of alt, like Star Trek kind of universe where suddenly Kirk and Spock are evil, the sort of mirror image of, of ours, where like an Iranian official is doing a presentation about the U.S. lied, and they cut to a clip of Barack Obama saying, like, this deal is going to last. This deal is like Iran and the U.S. kind of trying to work together. Cut to Trump. This deal is terrible. We're not going to abide by it. So I, I do think Iran is really smart, right? Like, the Republicans love to say it's run by mullahs who are apocalyptic, and they're these kind of crazy Muslim fanatics. They're smart, and they're patient, and they're savvy. And I would not be surprised at all if they're looking at the U.S., and they're thinking, already, France, Germany don't trust the United States. Already, Europe doesn't trust the United States. Already kind of Trump is a little bit isolated. So France has been lobbying in person through Macron when he was here, like we talked about last week. Germany through Angela Merkel, who was also here lobbying. They're pushing hard to keep the deal. So if Trump kills it, it's not just, I think, Zach, to your point, that Iran gets sympathy, although they do. It's that it's another divide between the U.S. and Europe. It's like another sign that Trump feels like, I don't really give a fuck that there was a deal in place. I'm going to pull out of it. And Europe, you can all go to hell. Yeah, look, Trump has spent his administration pissing off a variety of different key American allies. And like so far, there hasn't been any kind of massive backlash or consequence for that. Eventually, if you conduct your foreign policy on an ad hoc basis through Twitter and with a disregard to the history of the way that this stuff has been created, the bill will come due. It's just a question of when. Right. And when we talk about what that bill is, I also want to make sure that we don't just gloss over the fact that like a war between Iran and Israel wouldn't just be bad for like geostrategic reasons. It would be catastrophic and a very visceral human level. We are talking about two of the most powerful militaries potentially going to war in an already really chaotic and horrifying country, Syria, right? Or directly, you know, against each other one-on-one. -on -one. So I, I just want to be clear that, like, when we talk about the implications of this, it's not just this would be bad for American interests in the Middle East or this would be bad for, like, it would, but it also would be bad for tens of thousands of human people in the Middle East who would be caught up in a horrifying conflagration. Yeah, and I think that's the best possible way of ending because, obviously, this has the sort of goofiness of Netanyahu and Fox and Friends, but then it has the enormous potential, Jen, as you put it, I think, so well, the kind of catastrophic human cost that hangs over all of this, which doubtlessly, if this comes about, either on May 12th, Trump pulling the U.S. out of the deal, which we'll talk about in future episodes, or a war if that comes, which we would obviously also talk about, this may be the moment people look back to as like, that's where things really started to go off the rails. 
Intercom is the most comprehensive platform for business messaging. It automatically picks the best leads from your site traffic to reach the most valuable prospects, increase efficiency, and just grow your business. The Intercom Messenger is customizable to match your brand, and it has a home screen that engages visitors with interactive content, a newsletter subscription button, lead capture, and more before they even start a chat. Intercom's chatbot also qualifies and routes the best leads and potential customers to your sales team automatically. So you can keep avoiding your vice president of sales, or you could use Intercom. You could start for free today at intercom.com slash growth, intercom.com slash growth, and again, intercom.com slash growth. So for elsewhere, we go to Ukraine, where the government has spent months helping Bob Mueller with his Russia probe. But that came to a screeching halt this week, and members of the Ukrainian government were kind of remarkably open about why. So this is what one very powerful Ukrainian lawmaker told the New York Times, quote, in every possible way, we will avoid irritating the top American officials. We shouldn't spoil relations with the administration. So they're not hiding kind of why they're not doing this. Let's take one step back, though. Why would Ukraine have stuff Bob Mueller wants? Why would Ukraine have been giving it to him in the first place? And what else might have impacted why Ukraine isn't doing it now? So... One of the men at the center of all of this is Trump's former campaign manager, Paul Manafort, who's currently dealing with a series of seemingly damning Mueller indictments. Manafort's uh, career intersected with Ukraine many, many, many times. He did a lot of work for the former president of Ukraine, Yanukovych, who, Viktor Yanukovych, who was a pro-Russian guy, to the point where there were secret ledgers that showed that he was paid $12 million by Yanukovych's party, right? Paul Manafort was in deep with the pro-Russian Ukrainian side. So the question of whether or not while he was Trump's campaign manager, he was doing some collusion really uh, hinges in part on whether or not he was coordinating through his various different pro-Russian buddies in Ukraine. So Mueller would naturally want cooperation from Ukrainian authorities to try to figure out what the hell Paul Manafort was up to. And if he's not getting that, it's a little bit harder to figure out whether or not there was Russian interference in the U.S. election. Right. So those ledgers that you mentioned, they were literally provided by the Ukrainian government because they are investigating themselves, Paul Manafort. So they provided those ledgers, and that's why we know that that's a thing. So they literally, like, have the receipts, if you will. So the fact that they suddenly are like, just kidding, we're done, we're not going to—we don't need to share any more information, like, that's a problem because they have the actual documents to prove a lot of— nasty stuff that Paul Manafort may or may not have done. So we have an ongoing and pretty fun debate on the Vox Foreign team about who in Trump world is the most corrupt, right? Like there are a lot of people you can choose from. And I think pretty much our consensus from the beginning, and it just gets better as more details about Paul Manafort come out, that Manafort right now, he's the gold medalist. Like you've got other contenders for the throne. Yeah, Mike Flynn is a pretty close second and probably Michael Cohen. Yeah, Michael, like, I was about to say Michael, Michael Cohen. Cohen's pretty dirty. The guy's into taxi medallions and yeah. <laughs> this weird scheme involving fake car accidents to defraud insurance companies. Right. Like that's pretty. That's pretty you know, out right. there. But I mean, Paul Manafort is literally trying to help you know, a pro-Russian politician in Ukraine. I mean, I think the other question here that comes up, and this is coming up more and more with kind of all things Trump, was, is there bribery, right? Like, if you think back to kind of the Trump obstruction of justice probe, the Trump Michael Cohen stuff, did he basically pay off a porn star to stay quiet about an affair with Donald Trump? You know, there's this kind of like thing hanging over the Trump world about bribery, real and 
perceived, big and small. And that's part of the Ukraine story, too. So you had Trump a short time ago say, we're going to start selling Javelin missiles, these very powerful anti-tank missiles to Ukraine to stand up to Russia. And Trump got all this great press. It was like, finally, he isn't Putin's crony. Look, he's willing to like give missiles so they could fight Russia. Flash forward. Now suddenly you've got the Ukrainians mysteriously saying, we're going to stop helping Bob Mueller possibly take down Donald Trump. And so this question of like bribery, I mean, you can frame it as literal and short as, did Trump bribe Ukraine to stop the Mueller probe? It's such a weird question that involves like countries and people, but that is a fair question. Right. And I mean, I think, you know, I I would imagine that with bribery, you have to prove intent. So there is also the possibility that, you know, Ukraine was just kind of like really savvy and like, hey, uh, you know, we, we've been cooperating with the, you know, why, don't you, why don't you just give us some some missiles? I'm not saying anything. And then, yep, no, we're going to we're going to stop cooperating with Mueller. Right. Like they could have just been really savvy and played it really well. So I don't want to like imply that we know anything about Trump actually bribing Ukraine. But it definitely, there's a there's a clear quid pro quo, whether it was intentional or not, remains to be seen. Uh, but it's just fascinating too, right? So, Yulhi, like you mentioned, the U.S. is giving Ukraine these missiles to literally fight against Russia because Russia has invaded parts of Ukraine, right? So it's about, you know, pushing back against literal Russian meddling in their country. M- meanwhile... They're essentially stonewalling the investigation into Russia literally meddling in our country. So it's this bizarre, like, irony in this situation that they're they're kind of stonewalling one thing that would something they really would support, right? Pushing back on Russia because they're like, well, we could we could at least, you know, have anti-tank missiles. It's well, a little stronger. There's actually an extra layer of irony going on here, right. which is that during the 2016 campaign, while Paul Manafort was Trump's campaign manager— the Trump campaign successfully pushed the Republican Party to remove a plank in its platform that supported sending lethal weapons to Ukraine, right? And this arguably is one of the things that Russia got out of its support for Trump and is one of the right, one points of the, that people are investigating. Yeah, people look at that and say, look, see, they were colluding with Putin. And, and usually figuring out who makes a change to a party platform, this is something that comes out of a convention that usually doesn't matter all that much, but it's sort of people pay attention to it. No one will take ownership of this. Right. It's like this lingering mystery of like who went into the Microsoft Word document and like fiddled around with it. And we still don't know. And this was the same week where it's not I mean, another big story that we've all been talking about. The list of the first 48 topics, and it's important to say topics, not questions, that Bob Mueller wants to talk to Donald Trump about. And there was one in there that was kind of surprising, mixed in among the rest, which was Paul Manafort not just possibly being like a passive recipient of Russian help, but there's a question of Paul Manafort conducting outreach to Russia, which is like a whole other level of collusion and corruption, kind of further solidifying why he might be the gold medalist. But if you're trying to unpack that, right, if you're Bob Mueller and you're thinking maybe Manafort was seeking Russian help, how might he do it? It's Ukraine, right? Like Ukraine is the very possible, plausible proxy through which, if it happened, through which Paul Manafort reached out to Russia or Russia reached out to Paul Manafort. But the Ukrainian thing really matters, not just because of Paul Manafort's amazing corruption, but because on the big question of Russian help for Trump, Ukraine is like the obvious possible avenue. Right, and they literally just decided to stop cooperating with Look, the entire investigation. What What is really interesting to me about this is, if this is, you know, a quid pro quo, it's 
exactly how Trump thinks alliances should work. Right. Like, what do he, I get out of this? Yeah. When he talks about NATO, he thinks, well, they need to be paying more. We need to be getting more money out of it. He thinks that there needs to be a clear and immediate benefit in terms of like your tangible interest that comes from having an ally. You give them something and they give you something back. Not only that, but he doesn't see a separation between his personal interests, what's good for Trump, and the interests of the United States. So in this case, it's it wouldn't surprise me if it was less about, in his mind, you know, whether or not this turns the tide of the war with Russia and more about whether or not providing this assistance that the Ukrainians want ends up providing some kind of tangible benefit to Trump. And in, in his mind, this is exactly how things ought to work. Right. I can easily see some advisor going, hey, just so you know, you know, if we if we did this, you know, essentially like pushing him, even though they maybe want to push against Russia in a more military sense, going, well, you know, they are uh, they are cooperating with the Mueller probe here. And, you know, again, it doesn't necessarily have to be this like, yes, they signed an agreement, shook hands and said, I will stop cooperating with Mueller if you give us these weapons. But like I could see someone trying to kind of nudge Trump and him going, yeah, no, I, I see that. OK, yeah, let's do it. Nice anti-tank missiles you got there. Shame <laughs> something happened Shame to him. Shame something happened to him. <laughs> I mean, I think it's a perfect way to close because it's a reminder, again, that the Trump-Russia scandal isn't just domestic U.S. politics. It is literal geopolitics. It's got crime. It's got intrigue. It's got ledgers, which is all kind of fun. It's got ledgers. Yeah. <laughs> There's nothing sexier than a ledger, let me tell you. <laughs> but I think I could speak for the entire worldly cast and all listeners that, Zach, thank you for not busting out your not great Ukrainian accent. No, no, he's going to do it. You're, he's got, you're teeing him up. No, it's good. <laughs> you're good. Hello! I walked into that. I, I, I admit. You ran <laughs> screaming into that. Okay. Um, but thanks as always to our producers, Julian Weinberger and Bird Pinkerton, to Julie Bogan, who's our social media manager. We will be tweeting out throughout the day links to articles about some of the things we've talked about, links to other things you might want to read if you want to know more. Come find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, rate, review, subscribe, say nice things. Email us, worldleadfox.com. Find us on Twitter, hashtag worldlypodcast. And we'll be with all of you next week. Bye.